Greetings. I'm Brian Merchant, and this is a special edition of Radio Motherboard. See, July 16, 1945, saw the first successful detonation of the nuclear bomb at a site called Trinity in New Mexico. And just a few weeks later, another one was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan. This, 2015, is the summer the atomic bomb turned 70. So I decided to take a look back at the bomb's origins to reassess its legacy, see where it stands today, and to try to do it properly with a real-life Manhattan Project scientist as my guide. The 90-year-old physicist Marie Peshkin is among the last surviving participants in this, one of the greatest science projects in history. Together, we traveled back with his son to Trinity, where the bomb was exploded decades before. And he's actually one of the first men to step foot in the atomic crater. He was on the team sent to retrieve the instruments that measured the blast. And as you'll hear, he left stark naked, and he hadn't been back since. Right after our visit, we sat down for a lengthy interview, and what follows is a first-hand story of how Murray was recruited into the Manhattan Project in the first place, what it was like to work on the bomb with some of the 20th century's most famous physicists, and how a long life dedicated to science has been trailed by ethical questions and anxieties over his small role in building the most destructive weapon on the planet. So without further ado, here's Murray. We're here with Murray Peshkin, who at the age of 19 was one of the youngest folks to be sent off from university to work on the Manhattan Project. Uh, the 70th anniversary of the bomb has just passed uh, of the first atomic bomb exploded uh, at Trinity in New Mexico. So, Murray has agreed to come along from his home around Chicago to revisit some of that experience and as one of the last uh, surviving members of the Manhattan Project uh, to have a first hand experience of what that was like. So, uh, Murray, I think let's start at the very beginning. Um, you are 19 years old and you're at Cornell University. Uh, how do you get involved in this historic project? Well, the war was on, of course. Uh, I was actually 18 when I was in my last year at the university. Uh, I expected to be drafted along with other young men, but those of us studying uh, in technological fields uh, were given a year to finish their year at school with the thought that we would be more useful in the Army or the Navy uh, than we would otherwise be. And we were working very hard at school taking I don't know, five courses, almost all of them mathematics and physics, which would never be allowed under ordinary circumstances by the university, and going to school year-round, of course. And we were being taught by re retired professors who had been recalled to teach us because most of the active physicists and mathematicians were off doing war work. And one of these retired professors then approached me and at least two others individually and said, you know, you can sign up for those various programs that are being presented, or there's an alternative that I think you should consider very seriously. I can't tell you very much about it. Uh, it's a project, I can tell you that it's within the United States, that it will be a scientific and a patriotic opportunity, that uh, you will not see your family again until the war is over, and you will not be able to tell them where you are or what you're doing except for the bare fact that you're in the United States. And I recommend that you do that. I do not know what it's all about. I just told you all that I know, and that was the end of it. So basically, you're looking at a situation where, you know, you can you're being recruited by 
the Navy, by the Merchant Marines, people are saying, come join us, and you're, this professor ha- is saying, well, you know, there's this other option, this Project X, basically. Yeah, exactly right. And in contrast to the others, there was not a single scrap of paper. He simply said, if you want this, say nothing but to anybody except tell me that you want it, and then go get yourself into the army, and somehow you will be transported to this project. Trust us, basically. Trust, Trust us, basically, or they didn't use those words. Right. Now, when I look back on that, it sounds like a very intimidating situation. Yeah, it sounds like But at the time, it wasn't a bit intimidating. This was war. It was a popular war. People were in it together. There was a use for everybody. Uh, it, it was even a happy time for many people because the depression was over, and if they or their, or, or their loved ones were not at risk, suddenly they were needed, they were important, and everybody was in it together. And so, of course, I trusted him. I, I didn't hesitate. I didn't even say, I'll think about it and tell you tomorrow. I said, just said yes. You said so. And, and saying yes, just to make it perfectly clear for people who are so, so sort of far out of this mindset, wait, that meant signing up to the army, assuming that he's going to file whatever paperwork and get in touch with whoever else, and, right. and that you would be doing something uh, that was... General, generally, you know, good or safe, or you're not going to just volunteer to, you know, fire yourself out of a cannon or something, you know? Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So I just went to my draft board, and I said, I am ready to go. And two or three weeks later, I was in the Army. Yeah. Now, do you have any sense of how many Manhattan Project scientists or uh, you know civilian workers or soldiers were recruited through this this fashion. Would you think that was probably the norm back then? Well, it would certainly only be undergraduates, because anybody from graduate students up, well, with exceptions, anybody from graduate students up could get a deferment to work on this project. For some reason, undergraduates could not. And uh, so they used this mechanism. Interesting. So after, you know, so sure enough, so, so what happened? So sure enough, you sign, you go to the draft board, you sign up for the Army, you uh, have told your professor that you're willing. Um, mm-hmm. What happens next? Well, what happened after that was uh, I was sent to Camp Claiborne in Louisiana for basic training with some in some sort of, uh, well, there was some sort of army technical group, but they consist, they mostly consisted of, of people much older than I who had been fighting in Europe and were being retooled to fight in Japan. And after a few weeks of the usual routine basic training, I was suddenly called away to speak to some officer, some intelligence officer on the base, and he said, appear in this place tomorrow morning with your bags and say nothing to anybody. You'll have to tell your sergeant that you've been ordered to do that, but that's all you know. So that's what I did. And I found myself with eight or nine or ten others all very young like me. Uh, I, I was probably the youngest, but they were all young people. And we were put on it, we were sent to Los Alamos with uh, high drama. We were given sealed orders. Uh, the commander of our little group, because he was a private first class, was the one who had the orders. I never saw them. And we were sent by a circuitous route, first to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and then Cincinnati, Chicago, uh, Kansas City, if I remember, no, St. Louis, and finally put on a train to Los Alamos. And we, uh, but we were already seeing that there was something very powerful that was propelling us because 
When you went into a train station in those days, it was jammed, it was mobbed with people, uh, soldiers and civilians trying to get onto trains. But as soon as we appeared with whatever our orders said, bango, we were on the first train out. And at some point they actually gave us a car and then we only had to beg somebody to hook it up to their train. So after, you know, filing, you know, after this circuitous route and after a few months of basic training and whatnot, you show up in Los Alamos. <laughs> what is your first impression of the Manhattan Project? Well, uh, it consisted of some makeshift buildings, mainly. There was the technical area. They were all wooden buildings, primitive. Uh, I soon found, however, that they had things like the central machine shop, which was quite an impressive place. I once looked into it. Uh, the, their power, they needed a... They needed a cyclotron of a certain site. Well, the cyclotron at Harvard had, was disassembled and taken to Los Alamos and reassembled in no time at all. They needed Van de Graaff accelerators. The two best ones for their purpose were in Madison, Wisconsin. Had been in Madison, Wisconsin. They were in, at Los Alamos now. <laughs> uh, so it's pulling in all of these, uh, some of the most sophisticated machinery in the country. is Right. Uh, I'm sure that there. they needed, you know, miles of copper wire and all sorts of stuff that the Army needed for other purposes, but they got it. Right. And... Uh, so it was this makeshift place. It, was it bustling, full of people? Was it? Oh, it was by the time I got there, it was bustling and full of people. There was housing for several thousand people, which I'd never been there before. The Army did all of that in a few months. Uh, the General Groves was amazing. And General Groves being the, the officer. The, the, being the yeah. commander of the entire project, not only Los Alamos, but the entire Man Manhattan project. I soon came to know that those people whom I met casually every day and whose names were on their doors included most of the uh, most of the famous nuclear physicists in the country and others, of course, whom I would not have recognized, chemists, engineers of every kind, but they turned out to be leaders in the country. They were all there. And, and you were among them. You were, did that sort of, what, what was your reaction to that? You're just kind of at, you know, being treated as equals among some of these... Oh, no, by no means. <laughs> Look, I was not only the youngest, but also the least. I was just a student. Uh, what did I know? Uh, there are lots of things to be built that don't require much background. But that's what I did. And there was this group of people, must have been 20 in that group or more, who were simply doing numerical calculations all day uh, there were no, uh, there were no uh, electronic computers in those days. Uh, we were doing them using electrical calculators, sized sort of like that, on our desk, putting numbers in and then multiplying them and dividing them and adding them and filling out spreadsheets. With, uh, with the numbers according to what we had been told to do. And uh, that went on for a while. Now, what was the general sort of attitude like? What was the uh, sort of sense? What would somebody just open, like popping into the compound to the area, to the T section, mm -hmm. uh, what would, impression would they get? They would see a bunch of people who obviously had very high morale working very hard. And some of them were cleared for knowing what was going on and some were not. I was initially not like the other people who were calculating. And they would see that if they listened at all, they would see that the scientific and intellectual level were just enormously high. Yeah. And that, that, that all these famous people were there. In T-Division alone, 
four later won the Nobel Prize, and we were a tiny fraction of the project. Yeah, how many? How many were in the T division? I guess they must have been fifty or sixty. Yeah, something like that. And then, after a few weeks of doing those numbers, I had deduced that I was solving differential equations, but I had no idea why. I, I, could, I even could figure out what the equation was, but that didn't help me very much. I went to the guy who was in charge of that group, who was a, mathematic, a mathematician, and I said, look, if I knew what I was doing, I, I might just find a way to do it better. So he said that was reasonable enough, so he got me cleared. And I didn't find a way to do it better. <laughs> but uh, then I had uh, an unbelievably lucky break. Uh, Richard Feynman, who was one of the great scientists of the 20th century, and who was the golden boy of the theoretical division, to whom everybody came for advice, needed, uh, felt that he needed a private computing person. So he could have anybody in the group, he selected me. Uh, that was just a stroke of luck, such as you can't imagine, because my life changed completely. Whereas before, I was just doing these drudgerous calculations. Well, I was still doing drudgerous calculations, but there was a huge difference because Dick Feynman was a very great genius, and he was nice to me. Uh, he, he told me what he had in mind about the problem I was working on and about the other problems that he was working on. And since all many of the leaders of the project came to confer with him, he would encourage me to remain in the room and listen instead of just going on working. I think he did that because scientists like to be good to students. Yeah. I think there was no more reason than that. It didn't, it may have, it certainly improved my morale. I, I didn't improve my ability to do anything. Right. So I had a fascinating life then. I was sort of a fly on the wall, you know, watching what was going on. Right. And in some of our previous conversations, you've mentioned having sort of similar fly on the wall chats, or, you know, overhearing different chats with, uh, like, say, Edward Teller in the mess hall, or... Yes, well, I used to, I used to sometimes eat dinner, or lunch, rather, in the dining room, in a dining room for the civilians, where uh, I had to pay for my lunch, contrary to the army mess hall. And I did because the company was so good. Uh, the place, the, 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 the the customs were, I guess you'd call them very democratic. People came into this place, they were long, there were long tables, typically, I guess they held about eight people, and people sort of came in and just sat down at the first table that had an opening and they gradually filled up. And sometimes I found myself sitting with people like Enrico Fermi and Edward Teller, and I could listen to the conversation. And, you know, they were very nice to me. They didn't ask my opinion, for sure. <laughs> Do you remember any of those conversations? I remember one that was, that I found enormously funny. Uh, somebody, just lunchtime chit-chat, proposed some question of physics that required some thought. But, of course, for me, it would have required a lot of thought for them a minute or so. And Teller answered immediately. And Fermi, who was an even greater physicist than Teller, turned to him and said, Edward, I don't know if you're a better physicist than I am or not, but you're certainly faster. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> this sort of atmosphere that you're describing, um, uh, it's pretty unique. Uh, do you think that you know, the, the, the patriotism combined with sort of this style of kind of having this free-flowing, uh, you know, dialogue plus an imperative. Do you, do you think this was like one of the, you know, best sort of incubators for science that we've had? 
I guess it must be. Of course, it would be very common now. Uh, if you go to any university now, you'll find that the students address their professors by their first name and, and have lunch with them and kick around ideas. I think in those days, well, I don't know, I'd never been a graduate student, but I think things were more formal. And I think Oppenheimer deserved enormous credit for that. It was said, and I'm sure it's true, that Groves had, General Groves had wanted to compartmentalize information on a need-to-know basis, which is the Army way of doing it. And Oppenheimer insisted that, uh, that the way to make scientific progress is for people to kick around ideas and solve somebody else's problems and that kind of thing. At any rate, that's the way it went, and it worked very well. But we did have Klaus Fuchs among us. Yeah, who is the uh, famous Who is spy. The, the famous spy, yes. Yeah. And you had an interaction or two with him, too. No, I didn't have any interaction with him. I knew him. I doubt that he knew me. Uh, he, was not, he was not an outgoing person. And so he was down the hall, but he might as well have been on the moon. Right. He was quiet. Yes. And... So it was, I guess it was Greenglass then that you yeah, Well, yes, we also had David Greenglass. Now, he was not a scientist, he was a machinist. Right. But he managed to piece together a lot of useless information. Fuchs was the one who really got the Russians a fast start. Yeah. Although you have to remember that the Russians are just as good as we are. It would have taken them a few months longer, I suppose, without Klaus Fuchs or half a year or something. But Greenglass was a machinist who managed to get some information. Uh, Luckily for me, I'll tell you later, I guess, why it was so lucky for me. Lucky for me. I hardly knew Greenglass because I knew him, but I didn't like him and didn't associate with him. He was just an unpleasant person. Yeah. So... This is, you know, this is all going on in the run-up to, or sort of the end, the closing years of, of, of the war at this point. That's right. Yeah. When I got there, it was September 1944. Right. So there was, you know, there was still, there was still fighting going on, but it was... Well, Germany surrendered while I was there. Right. And... That was very interesting because I think many people had justified this horrible weapon on the belief that we were possibly racing Germany and we didn't want them to get it first. When the war in Europe ended, only one man left the project. A civilian could leave, of course, a man named Joseph Rothblatt. Everybody else kept working furiously. And I think it was a combination of momentum and the fact that, well, okay, now we're fighting a war with Japan. Yeah. And, you know, Pearl Harbor was a a terrible Uh, thing. Well, yeah, right. Uh, There was tremendous tremendous hatred of the Japanese as a people, not only as a military organization in this country, First of all, there was Pearl Harbor, which we felt was not playing fair. Uh, but more than that, the government and the news media stoked this anti-Japanese feeling. Uh, it was Overtly, it was based on their actions, and indeed, they committed terrible atrocities, and it was easy to hate them for that. But, you know, uh, they were not white and they were not Christian. I'm, and uh, and I, think, uh, I think it played up to that kind of prejudice very strongly in the general public. I don't, say in the, I don't say in the general staff or in the president they were probably above that. But they may not have been above uh, using it. Right. So, the, so, the, so, the, so Germany has surrendered. The war is going on in, in Japan, in the uh, you know the Pacific Islands, and there's 
still there's still very much sort of the the war engine is still driving the Manhattan Project at this point. Yes, absolutely. Okay. It was the war engine. Now, after the Battle of the Coral Sea, uh, Japan had a very ineffective navy and air force, and I think everybody could see that we will eventually win that war, but that didn't stop us. Yeah. Well, they were still facing the prospect of a lot of casualties. or Well, that's skills. right. Yeah. The, 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 there was a planned invasion for which I now know that the official estimates from the army were a million casualties. And in those days, one quarter of all casualties died. And in those days, people with uh, PTSD did not uh, count as casualties. Right, <laughs> there the must have been trend. a lot of those, too. Right. So, yeah, so tell me a little bit about uh, the days leading up to the first test of the bomb. Well, we were working very hard, and we knew that the test was coming up, and some people thought it was sure to succeed, and others thought that it might have a, I don't know, a 50-50 chance to succeed. But, uh, of course, once the test was coming up, uh, everybody was holding his breath, and then uh, those who were needed for the test uh, prepared the test. Again, it was an enormous undertaking, which was done in a very, very short time. And when the date of the test came, those who had jobs to do at Trinity were, of course, there. And the leaders of the project, even if they didn't have a job to do, were, because that's one of the perks of leadership. I, of course, was not invited to go along, nor any of the uh, other people in my group except Dick Feynman. Did you know it was going to be that night? Or? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So what about these fears, These like, these the, the fears that you hear about now where there's some people were saying it might, you know, ignite the sky or cause, it right. might wipe all of New Mexico. Yeah, out. well, I, I was not aware of it at the time. I know now that such ideas were uh, occurred at least to Edward Teller, who I think made some calculations which indicated that that was not so crazy. But then Hans Bethe redid the calculations, and as happened several times in his career, he got it right where the other, he found that the others were wrong and he did it right, and there was no such danger. So, and then, sure enough, they dropped the bomb, and it works. Right. Well, before that happened, once the test succeeded, then a lot of people began to have second thoughts. Now, the people that I knew and spoke with never had any hesitation. If we had this weapon, we were going to use it, and the more Japanese we killed, the better. It would help shorten the war. And besides, they were the enemy, and that's what armies did to enemies. That's what we, that's what we did in Germany. And, uh, but there must have been older and wiser people who had reservations. And after the Trinity test succeeded, some large number, I think 70-odd, people at Los Alamos and perhaps at the other labs too, I don't know, wrote a letter to President Truman urging him to warn the Japanese in some way before we use this. They sent it to him through channels, of course, and that channel was General Grove and he did, Groves, and he did not pass it on to Truman. He did not? He did not. Yeah, and there was also an argument you know, for a public display of the bomb and that sort of thing. Yeah, the, you could think of that. I don't remember whether that was in the letter or not. Right. That, I guess, would have been an example of a warning. So at this point, were you yourself having any ethical quandaries? No. About, no? no, I was 19 years old and not very thoughtful about such things. Yeah. But you also did have uh, an opportunity, and I love this story, so I want you to tell it one more time because it fits our chronology. But 
So a week or two or three after the bomb uh, was dropped, there somebody needed to go pick up the gauges. Ah, uh, yes. So I don't remember whether it was a few weeks or a few months, but it was shortly after the bomb was dropped. And the war ended. There was interest, scientific interest in finding these blast gauges that had been buried in the ground at Trinity at different distances from the bomb and because it was one of the things that would enable you to calculate the efficiency of the bomb and how much of that energy went into the blast wave and how much went into other things. And uh, Giving we, valuable data, right? To those yes, yeah. right. And I know that at least one party, I thought at the time only one, had been in the crater, but they had been in there immediately after the blast of a lead-lined tank. And of course, that's not how you dig gauges out of the ground. <laughs> so uh, somebody had to go in and dig them out. And I don't know how it came to be that the members of my little five-member theoretical group got the opportunity to volunteer. I always speculated that the, that the experimenters had thought that, well, theorists are useless anyway, but it, or, or that they had thought that, well, you know, they'd already gotten a lot of radiation and we hadn't. For whatever reason, uh, we heard that we could volunteer and we jumped at it because we wanted to see the place. It was exciting. So we did. And See the we, place you mean, the bombsite, Trinity. Yeah, Trinity. Yeah. It's a short drive from Los Alamos, yeah. a few hours, even in those days. So we took an army vehicle, and we drove down to Trinity, and we stopped at the base camp and changed to clothes that we would use there because they would perhaps become radioactive. And we drove out to where the crater was and we got out of the car with our little shovels and with a map showing where each gauge had been buried in the ground and with some radiation meters so that if, 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 we, if we received more than some trigger amount we would leave. We never did uh, receive any large amount and we uh, took these little shovels and we walked into the crater. Uh, we discovered the, what's now the famous green glass that has come to me called Trinitite. And we dug up these great gauges. It turned out they had not moved very much, so the map was very accurate. It took us, I don't remember how long, I'm sure less than half an hour. And then when we got them, we went back to our vehicle and drove back to the base camp and that was kind of a we were at that point we were kind of a comedy team because we were covered with blowing sand and which might be a little radioactive in retrospect that you know it wasn't really very radioactive but at any rate we took off our clothes and uh, we got into the car so there were those five naked men driving across the desert I was the only one wearing anything. I was wearing shoes because I was driving the car. And we went back to the base camp and showered and changed to our regular clothes and went home. And that was that. Yeah, it was very matter of fact, all in one day. <laughs> and that was uh, the last time that you had been to the crater until today. Right. Um, so, you know, I would now that we're back, uh, we've... I had a second or two to sink in. So you, what were your reactions going back to the crater 70 years later? I found it very interesting. I had not seen what's there now. My memory, you know, you remember things wrong after sometimes one year, let alone 70. I wanted to see what the place looked like. It looked pretty much like what I thought it would. 
Uh, it was very interesting to see it, and I'm glad I did, but I didn't have any, if you mean an emotional reaction, no, I didn't have any at all. Did it um, sort of bring any of the any any memories back from that time? Did it? Were you thinking about Los Alamos at all? Were you thinking about the bomb and where it is today at all? Well, you know, I've thought about that so much over the years. Yeah. Uh, all these, all these very difficult questions: Should we have done it? And could we have done it differently? And so on. Yeah. that I think I've, I've sort of played out those thoughts. Right. Now, you, you mention that a lot, and do you th I, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, do you think that many people involved have had as sort of a pitched sort of, you know, ethical, uh, you know, battle in their heads over it over the oh, years. Oh yeah, sure. Because yeah. people wondered about it. Right. I wondered about it for many years. In fact, for the first fifty years, I had a very bad feeling about it. Not, not a bad feeling that we did it because we thought that we were racing Germany. But I just had this feeling that. Uh, you know, how much better it would have been if we hadn't done it. And then, uh, at, some, at some public meeting, I heard Norman Ramsey address that question. Norman Ramsey is one of the great physicists of uh, that century, and he was a key player. He was on the airplane that dropped the bomb. And He said, you know, when fission was discovered in 1939, every physicist in the world knew that you could probably make a bomb. I won't say certainly, but probably. You might have to do a few experiments, but you could do them. And everybody knew that the energy scale, that the nuclear energy scale was a billion times the atomic energy scale, the amount of energy that you could get out per atom. And that really told you that this was going to be a new world. And Ramsey said, suppose we had not done it. After the war, we would know it could be done. The Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin would know it could be done. And there would be a kind of a race and Ramsey thought that we would most likely lose that race because although the Soviet Union's infrastructure was destroyed and ours was intact, you need more than infrastructure. You need to persuade every scientist and every important scientist in the country to help and to give up his work at his university or his, uh, his industry and go and join this project and make a horrible weapon. Right. And it's not at all clear we could have done that, but it was clear that Joseph Stalin could do that in the Soviet Union. Right. Yeah, and I think that one of the interesting things about the bomb is that, and, and the way that you yourself sort of frame it, is that, you know, the question boils down to if we have the the science needed to do it, you know, should we have developed it, and then B, should we have used it in this case? And I think the bomb, maybe as mu at least as much as anything, if not more than anything, speaks to that impulse that we have in our science. We can create, and we, we do create, and we tend not to always think so deeply in the future about the things that we are able to do. And the bomb demonstrates that there were all of these things that came out after we tested it. And now it opened up a whole new world, some good things and some bad things. But what do you think that the bomb and our sort of rush to do it, our rush to, 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 to drop it and to use it in the real world, what do you think the legacy of that decision has been? 
Well, the decision to use it was another matter after you found that you can make it. Yeah. And that has been discussed a lot. And you know, it's not a trivial question. Uh, the arguments against it are too obvious almost to mention. Right. There were also arguments in favor of using it. Those are, are expressed very, very articulately by Richard B. Frank, the military historian. Sure. And you know, they were pretty compelling arguments. In the first place, he said the Japanese were not going to surrender. And we knew that because we had cracked their code and we heard the conversations between right. the Army and the Navy and so on. And he had read those conversations as translated into English at the Library of Congress. And he said they were not going to surrender. And then there was the matter that anyway, it wasn't such a terrible thing to do. We killed more people in the uh, May, in the March 9th, 1945 thousand plane raid on Tokyo sure. than in Hiroshima and, uh, and and Nagasaki together. That's what you do in a war. Yeah. Well, what's the news? Yeah. We even did that in Dresden in, in, in Germany. And then he, had, he brought up another point. He said that the Japanese army was at the time murdering I can't remember the exact number, but it was some tens of thousands of people a month in China and Mongolia. And you know, if we had delayed and the war had gone on for months and months, well, balance that. And then there was yet another reason that I think may have played a major role. Hiroshima was bombed on August 6th. Russia joined the war on August 8th. And Truman did not want to share the occupation of Japan with the Russians. And so if we had not used the bomb, they would have joined in the invasion in some way and, right. and all that stuff. And you know, so, it's very interesting. Uh, I, well, if you like, if you like these hideous calculations, uh, you could say that the people of Japan, those who did not lose somebody in the bombings, were beneficiaries of having done it because they had the most humane and, uh, and helpful occupations that I ever heard of. They became a modern country. They became a prosperous country. They would have had the Russians like East Germany. Right. And yet, those were his arguments. Right, sure, sure. And, and they, they are inter they're interesting arguments. Um, I guess I'm more interested in, um, because there are, you know, there are a million different ways that history could have split, another, many, sure. a million different things that could have happened. And I think that it, at the root of what, what, what's interesting is that before all that, before all the geopolitical calculations, before all the armies were amassed and the bomb was used or justified, there were, you know, a few hundred scientists working, doing cutting-edge science, some of them aware of what their, you know, what they were bringing into the world and what their invention was going to do, some of them who are maybe not thinking about it so much. And I think that it's interesting that when we talk about it from time to time um, over the last couple of days, you've sort of expressed a sentiment that is well, you know, I, you, you've said at a, at a time that maybe you would have been happier had you have never been involved with the whole endeavor. Mm -hmm. Which sort of speaks to me as, because, and you're, you're also right, you, did, you know, you, you, you also say that you, you know, you deflect any claims of heroism or that sort of thing, too. Um, but it's just this peripheral involvement. Um, what, what do you think it is about about that, I, again, I think regret is too too strong of a word, but but about wondering if whether you actually wanted to be involved with this thing at all. I think the way I would put it is, 
It's not that I regret having done it. Under the circumstances, it seemed the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, actually, when I made the decision, I didn't know what the decision implied, but suppose I had. Right. Uh, under the circumstances, it seemed at the time the right thing to do. And, and yet, if you ask me now, just given replay, replay history, and I should not be involved in that, which would I prefer? I think I would prefer not. Uh, it's not that I'm beating myself up about it. Yeah. And that's interesting, um, because at the same time, you know, you've said it's also been a, a great uh, beneficiary in many ways for your career. and for Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. It, it launched me on my career because right. I, for instance, when I wanted to be admitted to graduate school at a time when that was very difficult because in physics, because there were four years' worth of candidates who had been delayed by the military right. service. Uh, the fact that, that Beta and Feynman and, and Phil Morrison, who were, my prof who were professors at Cornell where I wanted to go to be with Feynman, knew me. You know, that was very valuable. It gave me an enormous advantage over a candidate who was simply recommended by somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there, that, that tension between between sort of sentiments is is, is an interesting one, because, and it must be it must be very powerful um, because you know I, I from where I'm sitting, I, you certainly have nothing at all to to regret in in your involvement at all. But I can only sort of try to empathize with what it is like to have been involved in in an event that has eventually unleashed such power yeah. into the world. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, imagine that we had lost the war and the, vic the, the victors then decided to punish the war criminals. Would they have considered me a war criminal? Maybe they would. I would have given the defense, you know, the obvious, all the obvious defenses that you know about. But uh, so maybe I wasn't fully a war criminal, but that's what they would have said. When they worked down the echelon. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Yeah. I mean, and these are the, I mean, such is the complexity and, the, and, and just the sheer power of this, of this instrument. That's that, right. Yeah. It changed the world. And one of the things that it did was to destroy our moral leadership in the world. Yeah. Uh, before that, we considered ourselves the golden country, and I think people in the third world countries admired us. They sure didn't admire us after that, yeah, especially us. considering who the victim was. Yeah. So what, you know, is there an analog for this today? Is there, you know, are there things that we should be cautious of today uh, based on the lessons learned from the Manhattan Project? Are there, are there you know, very beneficial elements that we're, we have forgotten, things that can get good science done quickly? Uh, you know, what, what should we be thinking about today in terms of this anniversary? Well, I guess the thing to which you alluded, uh, the possibilities uh, brought, in, brought about by genetic engineering, I think should be thought about very seriously. Although with no possibility of stopping somebody else from doing it. Yeah. There seem to be, you know, there are a lot of different fields with technological and scientific acceleration. Right sure. Now. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Do you think that we've gotten any better at considering outcomes? <laughs> or Oh, I don't know. Your guess is as good. Your, your opinion about that is at least as valuable as mine. I don't know. <laughs> and are you still concerned today about the, the continued existence of nuclear armaments around the world? Oh, sure. Of course. Yeah. Of course. It's become much more dangerous than it was because uh, 
we could be sure that Russia would never have attacked us because we would have obliterated them and vice versa. Uh, with ISIS, they may not, whom are you going to obliterate? Are you going to kill every Muslim in the world? We can do it, but do you think we would or should? Yeah. Well, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? I think we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, I would like to talk a little bit about what happened after the war. Please. The, the country had this magnificent morale before the war. But after the war, things got very bad. Uh, Eisenhower, who had been a characteristic leader, I'm sorry, a charismatic leader of the project and was admired by all, his reputation began to tarnish. Uh, did I say it's an Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer. Yeah, he was Eisenhower. called to meet the president, to meet with General Eisenhower. He was the the biggest hero in the country after General Eisenhower. And then, so was anybody involved in the Manhattan Project, right? Yeah, but he. But he was the sure he was, right. I mean, we were the we were the analog of the common soldier, but he was the right. general in charge. Yeah. Well, then there was the question of how to control nuclear energy. And Congress was considering the May-Johnson bill and the McMahon bill. And the May-Johnson bill would have turned not only nuclear energy, but also all, all of nuclear physics over to the jurisdiction of the Army. And the McMahon bill would have created a civilian agency, that, which became the Atomic Energy Commission. And Oppenheimer went to some meetings or other, and he came back and told people that he favored the May-Johnson bill. And people were simply appalled. And uh, when asked why, he said, well, I can't tell you, but if you knew what I know, you would agree with me. That far, trust does not go. And so his reputation began to, tar be, be, to be tarnished. But then, what was worse is that after the war, of course, we had the McCarthyism. And now, instead of all of us being in this together, all sorts of people were suspect. And he... Even people who had just been heroes five years ago. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, look, we were coming out of the Depression. Scientists are intellectuals, and intellectuals play with ideas, and lots of them were interested in communism because capitalism had failed. And some of them may have admired Russia, not knowing enough about it at the time. Uh, I'm sure some did. Some were simply theoretical Marxists. Whatever the case, they were being hunted out. It was a witch hunt. And one of the, of course, the, the chief prize that they wanted to get at was Oppenheimer. And that was an, but in the meantime, they were destroying the lives of perfectly innocent people. And people you knew. And people I knew, many of my friends. And, you know, that was the time for Oppenheimer to say, look, this is a lot of nonsense. I was also a communist in my youth, or I was interested in communist ideas. That doesn't imply that these people are disloyal. At the worst, it was an error in judgment. He did not do that. He threw people to the wolves right and left to, to save himself, including his own brother, whom he never defended. Yeah. And so... What did it look like to you? Like, who was some like what, a friend of yours? I understand. Was? Oh, I, I could name any number. Yeah. Uh, Bernard Peters was a cosmic ray guy. He was a very good physicist. He was a refugee from Germany. Uh, he was not a Jew, by the way, but he was an anti-Nazi. Uh, he joined the communist underground because they were the one, only ones fighting his, fighting Hitler. And Oppenheimer reputedly said something about him to some congressional committee, uh, saying that he really can't be trusted because he was a, he belonged to an organization uh, that was committed to violence. I mean, that was just a horrible thing to do. Uh, Bernard Peters was hounded out of the country and spent the rest of his life in India. 
David Bohm, who many people thought should have won the Nobel Prize, had a similar fate, uh, and he, uh, he left the country and spent the rest of his life in, uh, in, in Brazil. Did you know either of these guys? Or? I didn't know Bernard Peters. I knew David Bohm very slightly. Yeah. And, <coughs> and there were so many. Uh, look, I, I was even affected by it. Now, I was cleaner than clean. I was a nerdy kid who came from a relatively privileged environment because my father was a high school teacher in New York and had a good job. And uh, I think I was sort of aware of the depression, but as I said, I was a nerdy kid. And you would think that I would be absolutely safe from that sort of thing, but I wasn't. I had friends. I had Phil Morrison. I had several other friends, and they would come and question me about them. Well, and two things would happen. First of all, I refused to turn my back on them. I continued to be their friends very visibly, and the FBI had lots of knowledge of things where I had taken this one in a car to here and there and so on. And then, uh, then the thing that really capped it, I think. So the FBI had a file of you taking. Uh, like oh, a, they, they knew. Yeah, they, they knew, knew the most it. amazing things. They knew that the uncle of the wife of my former college roommate were, wrote for a communist newspaper. And they told you that. And they told me that they knew yeah. that. I think just as a way of impressing me, what they knew. Right. And. And they knew when and you gave a ride to somebody who they... We are, well, okay, let me tell you sure, that story. Sure. Uh, I was teaching at Northwestern University at that time, around, it must have been the middle 50s, and FBI agents were always coming around because they were clearing somebody, and you would say, well, you know, I can't really know, but he seems to be a perfectly good guy. And they asked me about a fellow graduate student when I had been at Cornell. And I knew what they were after, all right. Uh, maybe, uh, I think he was. Uh, he was some kind of Marxist or communist at one time. He wasn't even a man I liked, although it turned out for an unjust reason. But I had given a, a ride to him in my car from New York to Ithaca, where Cornell is. And they wanted to know, and he had brought a friend with him, and they had wanted to know who else was in the car. Now, that is the slippery slope. That's where you, that, that's what the witch hunts do. So I said, I didn't remember. He didn't believe me, of course, and he knew how to handle that. He said, well, you know, you think about it for a few days, it'll come back. I'll come back. And when he came back, I said, I'm not going to talk with you about this guy. And he said, that's your privilege, and he left perfectly cheerfully. It popped up six or seven years later when I went to work for Argonne National Laboratory where you did not have to be cleared because it was not a weapons laboratory and it was an open laboratory. And, but then it turned out after I'd been there for a year, that if you had, there was some rule was discovered that if you had been cleared before, you had to be re-cleared. And they were having trouble re-clearing me. So I had a long conversation with an FBI agent, but luckily the McCarthyism was substantially over by then and he understood the situation completely. And so he recommended that I should be cleared, and I was. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing, but it tells you the way in which people were being hounded. Yeah. It, uh, I'll tell you one more story about that. Philip Morrison, who was one of the people who went to Tinian to assemble the bomb, and who was an important leader of the project, and who had been a communist once, uh, was now a professor at Cornell, and they were after him. And I knew it, and everybody, and he knew it. And he gave a talk at a physical society meeting 
in Chicago, and then I gave him a ride to a social event in the evening at the house of a friend who lived in Highland Park, who was rent, who has, who for the summer was renting a house in Highland Park. When the owner of the house came back after the summer, the chief of police of Highland Park came to see him and said, you don't want to rent to that man anymore. The FBI came around and forced us to put a 24-hour watch on the house and make a record of everybody who came and went, or, or at least the, you know, the license plates. That was the, that was the level of the McCarthyism in the United States. It wasn't the America we know. They really got, they went after a lot of Manhattan Project scientists, too. Well, sure. Uh, Sure, they were, uh, well, some of them were students of Oppenheimer. So uh, Phil Morrison was. And they were hoping to get at Oppenheimer through his students. And Phil, I know, and I presume the others, were furious at Oppenheimer for the way he had, uh, well, I only have have it firsthand from Phil Morrison, and he's not alive to confirm it, were furious at him, but they weren't going to play that game. Were you friends with, with hmm? Phil Morrison? Were you friends with Phil? Yes, he was. Uh, I worked af- after the war ended. I worked in a group which he led at Los Alamos, building a reactor. He was one of my professors at Northwestern. We weren't very close friends, but we were friends. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I knew any, a number of people who had one trouble or another like this. Some, who knows, some of them may have been spies. <laughs> he was at the mercury reactor that you were? Yeah, that was, a, that was a, rea- a mercury-cooled reactor. It was a very interesting thing. But, yeah. it, it, it illustrates another thing about the time and place. It had plutonium rods about that long. How did you put the plutonium rod into the reactor? You pick it up in your hand and you put it in. What else? <laughs> because that was the way we worked. That's why the project succeeded. Because there were no restrictions on being able to do as you the, needed to there do. There were no formal anything. Right. They hadn't been time to develop all those restrictions. So and you, you know, that was a perfectly harmful, harmless thing to do, that that plutonium rod was perfectly safe. It had been coated with some white metal that stopped all the alpha particles. So you've grabbed plutonium rods grabbed in your hand? It, yeah. Well, actually, you, you then picked it up with a sort of grocer's, uh, well, with some long pole, and you attached it to the end, and you lowered it into there. Right, right. But we didn't think anything of it, and I don't think anything of it today, but now it would be done by a robot behind a glass wall, a leaded glass wall that thick. Well, because there are some safety concerns, too, at the time, right? Right, there but were at accidents. the time, yeah. at the time, well, during the war, it was a war. So you told me about an accident or two that happened. Yes, uh, yeah. there was an accident in that same group, actually. Uh, the war was over. They were doing what was called a critical assembly, which was, you know, a dangerous experiment. Uh, the idea was that you learned more, that you could learn things about the, uh, the way in which the reaction, the, the, the uh, neutrons built up by taking two, well, in this case, a piece of plutonium, a hemisphere of plutonium, was sitting on the table in a little rack to stabilize it, and you lowered another hemisphere, and as it got closer, more and more neutrons moved up and back between the two, and then you just counted neutrons as they came out, the counting rate, and so you could tell the uh, intensity of the reaction as a function of the distance. And from that, you could learn something. You could compare it with calculations. Now, it was known and it was agreed that you should never lower anything like that because if you dropped it and the two came together, you would have a supercritical mass and, and you would have an explosion of neutrons. You should raise it from below. Well. They were in a hurry. 
and they did indeed drop it. And Louis Sloten, who had it in his hands, immediately threw the top hemisphere away. So when you say he dropped it, he was he was lowering it. Onto no, the it it was on. He was lowering it a tiny bit at a time. They had shims that they put in, and with a screwdriver, he was pushing the shim out a little bit or something. They stopped for the night. They came back in the morning. Something must have been a little different. And whatever happened, uh, it came down a little too close. And uh, the, count the neutron counters were jammed, so they knew that they had just been flooded with neutrons. Louis threw the top half of the of the, the top hemisphere away, but it was too late, it was all over. There was no sound. A person who did not, not know what was going on would not have known what, what anything happened. In fact, there was such a person. He was the military guard who was always there if you had plutonium out. He was standing near the door watching. Uh, he didn't know anything happened. Uh, he was the last one out the door. Because they, they all ran. Because they all ran. Because the, after he, after the, the the top hemisphere fell, Louis whacked it away. Whacked it away, but they knew but they that knew there had that been there an had been a they knew that there had been an explosion, not a physical an explosion, an explosion of neutrons. Right. And then they they all ran off to the hospital, but the others were further away, so they got hit by a fewer neutrons, and I think. As far as I know, none of them suffered any ill effects. Louis died about 10 days later. So besides, I, I guess just to wrap up here with a few concluding remarks, if you could, about sort of, besides the career advantages it gave uh, you mm -hmm. and on the greater historical scale, what, uh, when, when you think back about those two years and about going to Trinity, um, you know, what did that, what does that time period mean to you? Did it inform you spiritually or phys philosophically? Did it, good memories, that kind of thing? Well, the memories were neither good nor bad. I was in the army, I was lucky to be there, not in a, not in a trench in Europe. I didn't, I enjoyed being there intellectually enormously. On the personal side, I was lonely, uh, even though, you know, I had some nice friends, but still my no family, no girls. I was the youngest guy on the project. Uh, it was, from that point of view, I guess, you know, I participated in, in, in uh, one of the great projects in the world, even if only as a fly on the wall. And so in that respect, what should I say about it? If I blind myself to the consequences, you know, it was just a marvelous opportunity and I took it.